What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to the first episode of Armchair Producers for the year of 2023, which just sounds so stupid and weird and wrong. This is episode 169 of Armchair Producers. For those of you who are finding us for the first time, welcome. For those coming back, welcome back. I am one of your hosts, George Tarrant, alongside the man, the myth, the legend, the one who will lead us through 2023. Mr. Travis Croft, how are you, sir? I'm fine and dandy. I noticed we have episode 169. Nice. Subscriptions to my cult will, are going well. You know, you don't get led to salvation for free. Uh, nope, as a great man once said, funny. If, if you're good at things, something, never do it for free. Um, right. It is right. weird to be in 2023. I feel like we're living in the future. Yeah. Um, and as I posted on my own Facebook today, we are living in the darkest timeline because they Channing Tatum is going to remake Ghost. So, um, you know, and there are no jetpacks. I'm I'm not inherently against the idea of Channing Tatum redoing Ghost. I'm, I I even pitched it on this show of the idea of doing a remake of Ghost, kind of modern day. I think that there's enough there that they could definitely do something with it. But Channing Tatum? I, I just don't know. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, went to a recast um, Oda May as with Kevin Hart or something like that. <laughs> um, <laughs> don't give them ideas. The darkest <laughs> timeline, I tell you, people, um, where uh, apparently Avatar 2, Avatar 2 is making all the monies, so we'll mm -hmm. probably get those other sequels, but, you know, Whatever, we are here to smooth out those valleys and troughs. Uh, we have a new look, feelish yes. kind of thing for the show. We're going to try and do things a bit differently this year. Give us some time while we adjust. So mm -hmm. in the meantime, you can probably expect more of the rambly, nonsensical goodness that you're used to if you've been <laughs> listening to us for 168 episodes. Professional now. white noise producers. That's what we have. That's it. <laughs> Maybe that's uh, what we should rebrand the show, White Noise. White Noise. Uh, well, Although that be... might get some wrong people following. <laughs> I was going to say, like, uh, you might get people who are really interested in an old Bombback film uh, on Netflix <laughs> White Noise. Uh, we, might, it's, um, we will be trying to do things a little bit differently. And just a sneak peek, we are going to, our goal is to try and bring the show regularly well under two hours moving forward. So. <laughs> Um, unless you're one of yes. those people who listens to the show and like has a really long commute and you like it over two hours and you know, let us know. And maybe we'll, um, we can, uh, do it like a Patreon or something like that for extra, extra. Well, there is a little extra thing. I haven't talked to my co-host about this, but, um, I have, I've been toying with the idea and I think I'm going to do it. Um, when I actually get a better sound, sound and video setup, I'm actually going to do, um, at some point during the week, I'm going to do live read through of Vaughn. Instead of doing a um, an audio book in the traditional sense, um, you'll just be able to join in, listen listen to to me reading the book a chapter at a time each episode, and then as and when you want to, you'll be able to download it and just play it almost like an audio book broken down into chapters at your leisure. So. That will Have be you ever starting... considered a um a D and D campaign based in your books universe? Oh, 
Ooh, don't do shit like that to me. We could, we, <laughs> we, could, we could do that. We could do a being because you've been promising me a D and D campaign for two years now. Yes, it is very true. I need to get um, I need to get some more players to come in on that. But I've got an idea for um, for that campaign, and maybe uh, when it does come to fruition. Maybe we can record that as well. It's like it's, it's, people watch that on Twitch, you know. Maybe we can. Oh yeah, I, lots of people watch. I, I like you know what wouldn't be more fun than watching me who has absolutely no idea what's going on, looking confused most of the time. <laughs> That's usually what they see when they look at me. <laughs> it's like just this bl- look of so like, uh, I understand the words you're saying, but I don't understand what they actually mean. <laughs> So we got a but, good show, I think, yeah. starting this week, right, to get onto the actual subject matter of what we do. Yes, we're finally yes. back on on track with the chain. We te- we took a non-chain step just before Christmas for our non-Christmas Christmas movies. Mm-hmm. But uh, those who watched episode one sixty seven late last mm-hmm. year will remember we are talking about the nineteen eighty four hip hop classic Beat Street. Yes, Beat Street, ladies and gentlemen, Beat Street. Um, I'm just going to set this up now. In addition, we are going to try, one of the things we're going to try and do this year, we are going to endeavor as much as possible for two people with very little time and no sponsorship, we're going to try and talk about films, only films that we've seen together or TV shows we've both seen. We probably won't stick to that entirely, but this week we're going to kick that off because we, and after Beach Street's done, we're going to have a chat about uh, both Glass Onion and the yep. Ray Fine's film, The Menu. Yes. So just going to play, just for one round, we're going to play the Beat Street trailer. Um, I'm going to see if I can actually get the sound going on this as well, because the, the soundtrack to the trailer it give, definitely gives you a flavor of the movie more and than And if you're the, listening to the podcast and you're not watching the video, then you're really going to miss out on a lot if you don't have a sound here. On the, on, on the plus side, I mean, the, tr- the, this, the soundtrack uh, for the trailer does kind of just talk you through what you see in the trailer. So it's, it's like an audio book. <laughs> but here we go. Here is the trailer for Beat Street. <laughs> a new city street with the smoking fucking beat They used to hang out all night and just gang fight Leaving bodies all over the street But now it's hip hop, break dancing pop Electric boom just won't stop Everything in the town is built around That cutting, scratching, and hip hop sound on Beat Street Beat Street Kenny is a DJ known as Double K And he says he's gonna make it someday on Beat Street Beat Street A creative innovator to his heart His name is Raymo and his specialty is art on Beat Street Beat Street Henry is a drummer and an ex-marine As a strange singer faces of the Beat Street scene on Beat Street Beat Street Music is a language understood And the goal is to make it to Hollywood Some tape it, play it, dance or spray it On the walls, on the halls and some just say it on Beat Street Spinning on the sidewalk, trying to make a buck. Little brother Lee's gonna need a little luck. He's a break dance spinner, contest winner, but just like the rest, he's looking for a break on Beat Street. Beat Street. If you don't know what hip hop is about, then stop looking, listen, and check this out. Beat Street. Beat Street. Beat Street. Beat Street. Beat Street. Beat Street. Beat Street.
There we go. I didn't actually realize this when I watched that the first time, but that actually narrates most of what's actually happening in the film. The actual hip hop tune is actually a synopsis of what happens in the movie. (laughs) Um, Um, It's a very 80s movie, isn't it? It's it's (laughs) of its time. It's of its time. I'm yes. um, so for those who don't know, our link uh, in this film was from the uh, book of Henry, which really us here. Yes, the link for people playing along at home is Tonya Pinkins, who played, I think, the uh, the principal, school principal in that film, yeah. uh, is also here in Beat Street. She plays Angela. Um, I'm on, t- I'm in two minds with this one. Um, on the one hand, I didn't really enjoy it. Um, I was pretty bored most of the way through the film. Um, when I put it into Letterboxd, though, do you use Letterboxd at all? I have briefly started to play with it, but I don't really know what I'm doing, like most social media channels. It's not really social media, but we should try and use it more often because like, then people can follow the films we've been watching. But this is just me thinking on the fly here, people. Um, Stop it, you're making us look professional um but uh i noticed a lot of the reviews of people that added into letterboxd on beatrix were very very positive um and it got me to think about what this film is and what it does do well um is it is a very interesting time capsule um and look under the covers of Mm. hip-hop urban new york culture Mm. very early on in the life of hip-hop as a genre of music uh mm. and that whole culture which is now um become the most popular form of music in the world uh I yeah think, I, mean, I don't have stats to back that up but like it is now what um to, to you know what rock music was what i guess you know when i was growing up um yeah. it's you know it's ubiquitous it's everywhere but by 1984 it had been around about 10 years or so in new york city where it was born and yeah. there are some f- very interesting looks at what was going on i mean it is fictionalized mm. but i but some of the people involved in this are icons in in mm. the hip-hop world just for people who are playing along at home we have uh africa bambata uh the um the, the guys behind Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, Rocksteady Crew. Um, now I am not <laughs> not of the world of hip hop. It is not the um the meat of my musical diet, but uh I know enough to know who these people are. That these mm. people that it'd be like making a movie about rock and roll and having, you know, John Lennon and Lemmy and Ozzy Osbourne in it from the seventies or something like that. Uh, mm. these people are icons so um i found that side of it was interesting and it was treated with respect i think yeah i think so i think overall um in spite of it feeling dated um i think it did quite a good job of representing the different facets of the culture of that time and around that music not only the the construction of the music itself which i found was really interesting um kind of him going around and just recording samples of everything and using that to incorporate um but also the um the the dancing that was in it and uh Ramo with his um graffiti and things like that the, the different elements that kind of came through to be 
the kind of surrounding culture of it in a way of self-expression in a time that was it was the 80s you know everything the success in the 80s is kind of defined by sort of like high puff shoulder suits and power suits and uh plucky executives and things <laughs> like that um so it was kind of fascinating to see a little bit of that kind of uh time uh time capsule kind of feel to it um the other thing that kind of struck me was it kind of slightly felt a little bit like eight mile hmm. and whereas eight mile was very much kind of semi-autobiographical about um uh, Marshall Mathers and Eminem and his rise and things like that. The little hints that you get about kind of life of, uh, of an aspiring rapper in that you kind of get a little bit of that with this of like the um, the struggles that the artists go through. It is very much the struggling artist picture, um, but then they kind of hamstring it a little bit with the, with the romance element and it. it it just reminded me just the hint of it. It was like, okay. Huh. I wonder I wonder if it was kind of an inspiration to it, because it just it just felt a little bit like that kind of, you know what? It it is um for for rap, it's not exactly something that came from the upper echelon of high society. It is very, very proud of its kind of grassroots so to speak and then again i would i challenge anyone to find me uh this in the modern times a musical genre it wasn't something it was co-opted from the working class or again co-opted true. from people of color uh, rock and roll yeah. jazz yeah r&b all co-opted by white people from people of color mm. you know the beatles didn't create rock and roll you know they stole it off chuck berry you know <laughs> yep yeah so yeah i but then boil boiling it down to simply did i like it the more i think about it yeah i actually kind of did there was a lot of kind of cliche to it um and by the halfway point you kind of i at least i very much got the feeling oh yeah someone's gonna die <laughs> and not surprised when someone died um spoilers <laughs> for a movie from the 80s shut up the 39 year old film it's not up yet <laughs> it's as old as i am <laughs> um i think this is actually a really terrible film cinematically speaking like as a as an actual story as a film it's garbage um like for example, so basically the plot of a story as as outlined in the very catchy song. Um, we have a character, King Kong. I don't even know what the actual character's name was. Was it um, Kenny? Uh, uh, yes, Kenny. Kenny. So he's, he's called KK or King Kong is his yeah. rap name, his DJ name uh, in this in the movie. He essentially is an aspiring rapper, hip hop artist who wants to make it. And the story is the film is the story of his attempted attempts to make it and his inverted commas rise because 
the film just sort of peters out. It just kind of it sort of builds up to something a little bit like Eight Mile, which I mean, like it's been a long time since I've seen Eight Mile, but I think it ends in a you know a conclusive rap battle, which Eminem yeah. wins. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm, this one sort of ends in his job, his, his big gig happening at the Roxy, I think it was. Yeah, was it the Roxy? Unfortunately, um, Chris Kattan and Will Ferrell did not make an appearance at the Roxy, which <laughs> would have really topped the film off for me. Um, um, but uh, <laughs> we meet this cast of characters around him, his little brother, who's a uh, who's a break dancer and is part of a break dancing crew who has regular break dancing battles with another break dancing crew. Uh, we meet <laughs> his friend Ramon who is a, as you mentioned earlier, was a, a, a tagger or a graffiti artist. But I think this is trying to explore the very early parts of what became street art for inverted commas, mm. not just people tagging shit, but yeah. like actual graffiti art, something akin to what might have evolved one day into, you know, the Banksies of a world. Or if you're mm. here in Melbourne, there's a very famous lane here called Hosier Lane. They've got, you know, it's basically a gallery of, of, you know, graffiti artists or street artists, if you want to put it that way. Yeah. Different, different. Um, he calls them bombs in the film. I don't think I've ever heard it called that anymore, but um, yeah, yeah. They do different pieces on the wall uh, every so often. So he did them on trains, though. Um, mm. uh, and we sort of follow them through their journey of sort of doing low level gigs and uh, parties and clubs and stuff and in derelict buildings, even. Yeah. Uh, before to try and get an, and their name out there and impress enough people that they can sort of um, make it as proper hip hop recording artists, uh, which would have been very difficult at the time because, as it was said, the, the scene was nascent. Um, he the love interest you mentioned, which really gets ridiculous, is he meets Tracy, played by I'd suggest the biggest star in the movie uh, in mm. terms of acting, Ray Dawn Chong, uh, who is some sort of composer i think it works at a very posh sort of uh art school of some description yeah i couldn't um, quite work out what it was i don't know if she was like a student composer or a teacher or what but she seems to be some it, like, kind of prodigy it doesn't actually make it terribly clear what she is but she meets kenny at some of his gigs they take a liking to each other after she tries to get his younger brother uh, involved with the school and has him come down and do a break dancing demonstration uh, and their their mutual interest in music evolve into into a romantic relationship that mm. some of us parts of his story just don't make sense like the scene yeah. involving Henry Henry is the big white guy they meet in the basement while they're doing a gig in a derelict building you sort of like he's yeah on the walls or something looking for somebody while they're doing a gig upstairs and have a very strange conversation about the person he's looking for not living there anymore because the landlord built the burnt the building down and yeah then he just becomes part of their part gang. Of the crew but yeah. he's actually heavily if you if you're not watching this live stream and you listen to the podcast later go back mm. and have a look at the the trailers for this film the, the, the tall big white guy kenny is featured a fair bit in those mm. trailers so i was kind of expecting him to be almost the voice of the audience of the, the audience following it you know through this um yeah, uh -huh. new world uh -huh. of uh of hip-hop and graffiti. i agree but i don't think he has another line after they meet him at the start of a film he, he does there. eat a can 
He does eat a can at one point. Matt settles people down. That learns him. Yeah. Um, he breaks up a fight I, I, by eating a can. Yeah. I think I think he's like a wasn't he ex ex soldier and he was just kind of just banging along like drum style music to uh, to the to the rhythms and yeah he just kind of falls into he the group. He turns up, he like, hangs out with him, and okay. just nothing else happens with him. Like you introduce this yeah. new character and you at least the other characters have something to do. You know we've got the the, the yeah. graffiti artist, which is a seminal part of his culture. We have the break dancer, which is again. Another important part of his culture, we've got the guy who wants to be his manager, who's negotiating mm -hmm. for him. And that kind of makes sense. But this guy's just there <laughs> sometimes. Yeah. Um, you, know, you got um, any food. <laughs> and you kind of feel like the relationship with, with, with Tracy was just sort of inserted to, so they could sell it to theaters. I mean, honestly, yeah. I feel like the story is just there to link the musical numbers and dance scenes. Like, this is, we just need yeah. something to get us from Hip Hop Battle 1 to dancing too you know that's it's just mm -hmm. there um yeah. it, and that's why i think this is a terrible film yeah from a cinematic perspective if you like hip-hop culture and you're a bit of a geek about um you know the history of this, the, the the genre of music this would be fascinating for you i think you'll very mm -hmm. much enjoy it in that case but yeah don't go in expecting to enjoy the story yeah it's that it, there isn't really a story is the thing and everything there is barely enough to move it on and it kind of i kind of feel like it would actually be a very interesting given the the society of the time and how interesting and unique um uh, voices that came out of that time period and that musical genre birth it would be really interesting to get a like a semi-documentary about that like a really well produced one just going deep into it i think there's a lot of very interesting stuff that could that they could make a very interesting movie about but that's not this movie no <laughs> Uh, <laughs> if you are interested in, um, in, in, like for me, I'm a bit of a nerd about this kind of thing. I, I think it's fascinating because, like, in our lifetimes, we saw the birth of an entirely new art form being, or you know, well, version of the art form. I, I think we could get away with calling it that. Um, in the time, film, in the form, well, <laughs> absolutely, in, in the form of, um, uh, in the form of, uh, you know, uh, hip hop um, being mm. that didn't exist when we were or barely existed when we were born, um, that it's now you know globally dominant. Um, mm. And there are um, there is a documentary uh, that they made for Netflix about this, um, and it was made by a guy who started out. He's actually a Canadian sociologist who started out doing um, documentaries about heavy metal. He wrote his thesis about heavy metal and how that grew out of um so he made two fantastic metal documentaries but he made a series called hip-hop evolution so um if it's i think it was on netflix i don't know if it still is and what genre we speak readings but if you are interested in the topic of this like hey what did where did hip-hop come from and what did the world mm. look like when hip-hop started who are some of the big names um mm. you'll find them in beat street but you check it out for a more documentary high quality mm. You, if you don't need uh, Ray Dawn Chong's uh, bizarre African-inspired ballet scene, I don't know if you caught that part of the film, but yeah. the guys dressed in, like, look like they were in Lion King outfits, but they were doing, like, ballet. 
Yeah, it was that was an interesting bit. <laughs> and I was like, all right, okay, you're investing a lot, a big chunk of time and your budget into making this, but it doesn't actually seem pertinent to the story that you're trying to sell here. Sorry. <laughs> One thing I, I would f I do find interesting about this film is, is the producer, whose name I noticed during the credits, is how I pay very close attention to the credits. Um, <laughs> the producer of this film is a guy named Harry Belafonte. Um, mm. I don't know. That's a name I know. Um, everyone would probably know him from a movie he didn't make, but his song, he's a musician first, mm. uh, activist and an actor and a producer of this film, obviously. But uh, his version of the Banana Boat song was in Beetlejuice, in the daylight come and I want to go home. Yes, um, that's it. And I think Tim Burton was a big fan of Harry Belafonte, and that's why he incorporated that song into that famous scene in Beetlejuice yes, where they all, they all do the Banana Boat dance. And, yeah, I, we, we, I don't think we can get away with playing that clip because we get fucking copyright <laughs> struck again. Thank you, YouTube. But you can use your imagination and you can find it yourself. Yes. Um, but Harry Belafonte is a very well, if you're, mm. you know, well versed in these, he's a very famous actor and social activist, um, massive critic of George W. Bush, uh, mm. UNICEF goodwill ambassador, massive anti-apartheid activist back when that was a thing in the eighties. Um, and so I think you can see some of his influence, at least I think, in this film, in the sense of there's almost a social realist aspect of his film, which is ridiculous to say when. It's kind of a ridiculous film. But mm. that's, what's the bizarre thing about this film? It's a ridiculous story, badly written. But just the, the, the scenes of them walking through their neighborhood, their neighborhood yeah. looks like like freaking, you know, Dresden post-World War II. It's like a war zone. I got um, watching them walking through the streets and so like going into the abandoned building to, to have their kind of just impromptu gig and things it reminded me of the scenes where um with nail and i are walking around the streets of london in the in the 80s there as well so like that just dejected dresden's feel of there is no hope here kind of thing it does for hope and that whole line about hey the landlord's burnt this building down five times now yeah, why would a landlord burn his building down? I think there's some very obvious reasoning there, but um, I think that is making a statement in this film about the world in which hip hop evolved from, these people grew up in, is not a good world. I mean, they keep going, "Oh, this is the Bronx. It's not New York City." Um, yeah. Last time I checked, that was part of New York City, but like I don't live there, so. Um, it's fight words to some people. <laughs> but I mean, like, I don't know. If you go to the Bronx now, I guarantee you it doesn't look anything like that anymore. No. And all those, that empty block, the you know, the derelict block that they played their house party in is probably occupied by millionaires now because, like, yeah, it's, it's uh, highly gentrified. Incredibly gentrified. You know, it, I mean, if you go back to say, uh, coming to America, that famous scene where he goes to Queens. And, you know, uh, it's one thing Queens has got a lot of. It's common parts. Um, you know, not anymore, it doesn't. Oh. No. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's. Um, I, I think that's, I don't know if it's a Belafonte directly, but it mm. doesn't surprise me that a film he was involved in is making both sort of observations about the world mm. of Ronald Reagan's America. But, you know, 
it wasn't all morning in America and, you know, shiny uh, suburban neighborhoods. This is what was happening in mm-hmm. America's biggest city. And this is the world yeah. that these kids grew up in. And, and I thought that was one of the few parts of the film that really worked that weren't yes. in dancing or singing or, or rapping. Yeah. <laughs> um, what did you think about the Ramo slash spit rivalry and denouement, shall we say? Denouement. <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> Mr. Frank. I'm um, using special words today. Someone, he's got all the best <laughs> words. Um, uh, I um, look. It, you know, I grew up in a working class neighborhood, and in, in you know the, the mean streets of Geelong. Um, you know, I think you talk they about, were mean streets for you, considering you're not a cat supporter. Well, yes. Um, so they were <laughs> deeply unsuccessful at the time, so it didn't really matter. Um, but you know, I just remember that, like, that was still a thing. I mean, this is the you know, this is when dating myself here. It was the late '80s, uh, early '90s, but like, it was a thing that, like, you know, people there were you know, lots of graffiti artists who fancied themselves in Geelong. No one quite the level of Remo, but um. Yeah, it was kind of a big deal to spray paint over someone else's shit. You know, I didn't. I'm not. I never did graffiti when I was a kid, but I knew well enough that when you saw somebody had done it, you're like, "Oh boy, that's um, that, that's that's um, that's a, that's slap a, that's on a the big face. deal. You're not yeah. going to get away with that lightly." Um, yeah. And uh, so, I mean, I can see how that that was be um, something that would spark quite a bit of emotion in Ramo, considering how hard he works these things. But maybe he's also making he's also statements in this about this is not tagging. This is art what he's doing. And this is so yeah. maybe this is an attempt to visualize the difference between art and tagging. Uh the do more um was ridiculous. One of the yep. more ridiculous fight scenes I've seen in the movie outside of uh Morbius. Um <laughs> <laughs> it was still better I, than I, I really, in that film. Yeah, I really didn't. I, I still, it still didn't make sense that he he said Ramo said it's more than more than time. Yeah. It was an odd <laughs> choice, but you know he was ahead of his time. It was um, so it, it um it was kind of dumb, but like you said, they needed someone to die. They needed a very dramatic moment in the film, mm-hmm. um, and uh, you know I was thinking the whole time, like knowing a little bit about how. Uh, U.S. subway systems work is it's very it's dangerous mm. to jump on a subway here in Australia because you're going to yeah. get hit by the train. Yeah. But it's extra dangerous over there because they've got that electrified rail that the trains run on the trains here run with power overhead. Um, so yeah, yeah, I mean we all knew that was coming, but it was kind of yeah. dumb. Uh, yeah. But it was it was there <laughs> because the film needed it to happen. Yes. Um, and then sort of like bringing it uh, to to the fi- finale where um uh, uh king kong um uh yeah he's he's doing the isn't it like a, a new year's eve bash kind it of is, thing but it's turns into a memorial for Ramo as well yeah and he's got sort of like um all the different types of kind of inspired music around it like the gospel choir and uh there's the rap group and the dancers and everything like that it was actually quite a well-produced kind of thing so like you know what as a representation of the the thing they did a good job of actually kind of showcasing it um 
and that kind of made the rest of it kind of other parts of it kind of feel different to me about how I considered them. The um, like the sequence where um, he's in his room and he's just mixing and just really kind of into it and just enjoying lost in the music as he's doing it and talking about it and the stuff like that. It's like, it makes sense. Um, and then the so like the, the, the dance battles that happen when I first kind of looked at him, I was like, okay, this is just stupid. It, it then kind of went, all right, I, I get it a bit more now. I, I think I get it a bit more, but still not well handled. Not well handled. No, um, it's, it's needed. I haven't seen uh, the other hip hop films of the time. I think there were a few. It was like famously Breaking and Breaking Two, Electric Boogaloo, and I have um, seen Electric Boogaloo too. Oh yeah, um, <laughs> but I feel it. like they were more stylized, more sensational. Yes. Um, about you know uh, the topic, if you will, mm. like more ridiculous, more for white people, really. I guess. Yeah. Uh, yeah. for, a broad, for apparently not as good as this, which is saying something. So I think this is more of a realist looking, someone trying to look more realistically mm. at what the scene was about, what was going on, what was happening in that scene at yeah. the time. Um, but they figured to sell it to anybody, they needed a story. And yeah, but you're right on that last scene. That last scene involved people like uh, Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. Mm. Um, if you're too young to remember who they are, do Google them. They're very good. Um, and that was probably the highlight of the film, I thought, for me personally, was the end, apart from the fact that it was yeah. ending, which was merciful because <laughs> uh, it was a long hour, 40 minutes. Yeah, uh, it was. <laughs> but I, I figure a lot of that's to do with the fact that I'm just not part of that in the sense that, mm. yes, I was alive at the time, but I didn't live there. I didn't experience it. Just that genre of music doesn't speak to me the way mm. it does to people who are fans or yeah, I guess maybe even younger people today. Cause it's mm. the genre of music they've been exposed to probably most throughout their lives. And yeah. you listen yeah. to triple J now, which if you don't know is a youth radio station in Australia. Yeah. I think mm. they play an awful lot of hip hop now and have done oh, yeah. for a long time. Yeah. So, but I, it obviously really speaks to a great many people these days. It doesn't speak to me. And no. uh, I yeah. kind of find it tedious a lot of the time, but this is better than, most of a rap that come and hip hop music, mm. I think, comes out today. Um, yeah. So I just think it's maybe it, it, a reason I didn't really like it is that mm. these are the massive cultural signposts to me that they would be to a real fan. Mm. I know what they are. I know who Africa Bambada was and how important he was uh, in that genre of music um, because I'm a big fan of, say, the Beastie Boys. I know what they think mm. for him, but is it, otherwise, it's not really important to me. It'll like be like, you sitting down and watching something about a sport, you know, football for pretty English football, for example, because it's not really anything you give a shit. <laughs> you might know who knows some who some of these people might know who such and such a person is, but that doesn't mean it matters to you. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, uh, it's 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 there's no touchstone of of engagement and um, enjoyment. Like there was, I f I remember feeling a similar kind of sensation to the first season of Luke Cage um, on Netflix. There was a lot of reference to um, that particular part of New York, and it's like, okay, I've never been there. I I don't know. I I know that I'm missing something that is probably important to people who have lived and grown up in that area but 
I it's it's just nope. no 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 point of reference. Sorry. <laughs> so I, I recognize it for what it is, and it just it mm. doesn't matter to me because I don't really yeah you know it's, yeah it's like I remember years ago. Uh, I'm sure I've told you this story before when I was in Canada once on Canada Day of all days, and they had this special oh. on about the um, the Great White North. This TV show that starred Rick Moranis and some other guy. And I had all these famous people raving about how good this show was. And I just remember going, mm. first of all, going, what the fuck? I've never even heard of this show before. Never heard of these characters before. Is this like a piss take? Is this like a mockumentary? It turned out it was real. Um, but it's just like all those cultural <laughs> signposts about they were really, really important in Canada, really huge in Canada. Mm. Like, you know, uh, Paul Hogan big in Canada yeah. kind of thing. But it just didn't matter to me because I'm not Canadian. So, you know, those cultural signposts of, you know, famous Canadian hockey players going, oh, it was really good air. Um, <laughs> it's like, I just, I don't oh, get, you know. Sorry that was that. That was, that was, that was racist. Um, <laughs> um, it was, I, I think it was an interesting, I, I, I'm actually kind of glad I chose it because I think it was mm. an interesting step away from what we normally do. Mm. Um, have you got anything more you'd like to say, or would you like you have always no, the keys? nothing more. I will. I will talk about where we're going, and we are going to follow Mary Alice, who played uh, Nurse Margaret. Uh, nope, nope, that's who she plays in the in this extra movie. It was um, their mother, um, and she is probably most certainly most recently famous for playing the Oracle in uh, Matrix Revolutions, where she underwent a face change because the previous oracle actor passed away um but yes she is in the the connecting movie um which i've never watched and it is awakenings starring robert de niro and robin williams and I figured, why not i've not seen this movie before some people really really talk high things about this thing it's a bit of a biography follows uh, the victims of an emphysitis epidemic many years encephalitis. ago have been, encephalitis thank you very much <laughs> have been catatonic ever since but now a new drug offers the prospect of reviving them um so i think it's another kind of change of pace for what we typically choose um and have you ever watched awakening i have not um i'm yeah. i always look like a tearjerker to me you know yeah. really really heavily sentimental um mm. which kind of robbed me did, a, did that a lot you know um mm -hmm. uh, he was he was good at making you cry when he wanted to um directed by penny marshall so mm -hmm. very famous director um, for those who yeah. don't have any uh, point of reference, big, a league of their own. She's she was in Cagney and Lacey. <laughs> was she? Was she not? Or was oh, it the other? Um, was that when she was in? Um, she was in a TV show. Was it Laverna Shirley? I can't it was Laverna Shirley? Her. My bad. Oh shit! Yeah, <gasps> Travis made a mistake. Unbelievable. Do not let him forget it, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> and it stars also Julie Kavner. Mm. Julie Kavner is the voice of Marge on The Simpsons. Yeah. Yeah. For the, it's one of those times where we actually get to see the actor's face for something that she did. 
That was that was a pointless statement there. You ever see anybody? She doesn't like showing her face um, when she does anything about um, her Simpson stuff, which is a bit weird. Uh, okay, that is a good call because I've never seen it. I always thought it looked like crap when I saw it on TV. It's like uh, I don't want to see that. Uh, but it has got a seven point eight on IMDb, so yeah. it's a well-rated film, and it is a bit of a change of pace yet again. As you say, it's sort of that really sentimental. Um, mm style cinema was popular in the 80s and 90s so um yeah that's what we'll be checking out next week what should we talk about now should we talk about reckon maybe it's a Mm -hmm. good time to slide sideways into the uh new uh ryan johnson film um yes glass i I, I remember a conversation for you i had probably a better part of 10 years ago um, in Apollo Bay, we were sitting outside a house that doubled as a seashell factory, a seashell museum, and may also have been the home of a serial killer. I can't confirm or deny a serial killer part, but it would not have surprised me because it didn't look like a bloody museum. No, it did not. Uh, it, it just looked like someone's house. <laughs> and I think it was someone's house. We can sign out the other people come in and look at his seashell collection. Um, uh, but, uh, um, our respective partners at the time decided that was a good use of their time was to go to a seashell museum and they went in and you and i i suggest wisely decided to wait in the car uh, <laughs> uh, point some may call us cowards but not me i call myself a I, smart call us, I call us iconoclasts um <laughs> yeah some people see the words and say why uh, <laughs> uh as a seashell like someone's house and say why not stay in the car uh, <laughs> we um we had a conversation about your favorite filmmaker at that point in time that would have been 2012 2013 ish i'm guessing mm-hmm. maybe even yes earlier, i can't remember exactly well, it would have been it was, about but, uh, um, 2012 yeah uh your answer was and at the time it was ryan johnson mm-hmm. and this is before this is probably post looper i guess um uh, uh but let me have a quick look at that one for you. Uh, this would, was yeah, would just, I yeah, this would have been just post Looper, yeah. So at that point in time, he would have had basically had Brick, the Brothers Bloom, and Looper. So mm-hmm. he was your favorite filmmaker at that point in time. Is he mm. still your favorite filmmaker? He's one of my most interesting ones because he um, he has definitely found the style that he wants. And when you look at movies like everything that he has done with possible with probably the exception of the last jedi it has been his own creation that it is it is done um and he has played by his own rules and there has always been a firm element of tongue-in-cheek for most of it brick is a hard-boiled detective story set in a high school about drug lords and it's sort of like okay that's an interesting twist on the on the genre and then looper time travel element of with with a little bit of the the mystery to it and the the whole point of solving it and trying to work out what's going on the brothers bloom is con movie and not only is it um quite a quintessential con movie in the like twist on a twist on a twist kind of typicality that um you'd get 
in those things i'm thinking uh such classics as the sting for example but there was more heart to it and an overriding sense of <sighs> wanting to break out of the con for both uh both parties of the brothers volume for very different reasons and it's it just stuck with me in a in an interesting way uh the last jedi i still maintain is has got a lot of really great elements to it it's not a star wars movie though it's not what star wars fans wanted it is very good evidence as to why you should always have a damn plan when you're trying to make a movie let alone a trilogy of movies to have a plan so when if and when one creative team steps off and a new one steps in they kind of go oh i see what you are doing those are my toys to play with let's do this rather than nah, throw it out and start again and then do exactly the same thing for number three um and then came knives out murder mystery who done it the fireplace sitting room reveal everything that you could possibly want with daniel craig putting on a fantastic performance as bernard blanc great reviews all around rightfully so fantastic next thing we know he is making a sequel glass onion a knives out story he did not want the knives out part included he but um, he had to and he got paid a metric shit ton of money mm -hmm. to do this by netflix mm -hmm. like i think the he has got was like a seven picture deal 200 250 million dollars or something for the for the two sequels to knives out um mm -hmm. and this came out just after christmas i think here in australia from mm -hmm. memory boxing what day did you, what did you make of it um i overall like it it is not as good as knives out but at the same time it is very much a finger in the eye to people expecting knives out again because every single thing about it especially the end where it has now been this like lampers like oh it's so dumb it's stupid no it's just stupid that is it that is it and it sums it up perfectly it is a almost like a fucking prank of a movie on the audience and whilst i think they did it well they delivered an interesting story because of great performances and the ability of ryan johnson to be able to just keep the story going it goes back to a lot of the problems that I had with She-Hulk, where it was sort of like, ah, oh, fuck you, audience. We're not going to do anything. Uh, we're going to keep on showing you and telling you all the things that we know you want, but we're not going to do it. That's not good. I feel like this lands those punchlines better, but it's still kind of tough to watch because I feel like it is aggressive to the audience. Does that make any sense? It does. I, yeah. I didn't have those feelings while I was watching it, but I can mm. see your point because I don't know. I just, I don't know that I had expectations about this film. Um, mm. And, you know, as long as a film made sense to me mm. uh, and it did, 
and mm. it was had some. It's Ryan Johnson. It has its um little subplot messages, <laughs> little messages. It's it's embedded in it. I mean, this was made before. It tell me uh, Ed Norton is not Elon Musk. I mean, <laughs> really. Um, True. Uh, it True. also has some things to say about class uh, mm-hmm. in here as well, which is not unusual in a Johnson film. Um, it was there in um, Knives Out with, you know, Anna de Armas' character being, you know, the hired help and everybody else being uh, very independently wealthy. And there was the, the one of the characters, I forget which one, was very much a Trumper. and, and, and Yeah, know, that the, was Michael Shannon's character, I think, wasn't um, it? Yeah, and, you know, the exercise of class as sort of, you know, almost a shield for those guys, for Chris Evans's um, character in that film. It's, it's the murderer in that film. I haven't seen this since it came out. Um, <laughs> but, you know, even in even in the, the Star Wars film that he did, there's the whole sequence on um, the casino planet. And Canto the, Bight, yeah. And the, uh, the sort of a post seat, you know, the, 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 the thing at the end with a kid, the, with the, who's a the slave kid, I think, is kind of the situation, mm-hmm. who uses the force to... to to, to grab the broom and stuff like that. Interestingly, something that they just completely ignored uh, in the uh, final film, The Rise of Skywalker. <laughs> was that the last one? I can't remember. That was, uh, thankfully. The, um, the Abrams film afterwards, he sort of said, does this pretend that didn't happen? But um, mm-hmm. but those little, where I, I traditionally said I didn't like the Canto Bite sequence, but that was very class-based, you know, um, mm. the big, very obvious wink at the audience about that. So I like that being in this film as well. So I like that in addition to telling a fun, entertaining story, there was some some substance there. He was making mm. a few little points there for people to think about um, uh, as well, uh, mm. alongside the fun, entertaining story. The fact that the basic of a twist at the end was it's not very clever at all. The mm. twist is there is no twist. You know, um, it's exactly it's it's being incredibly stupid. I, didn't bother me at all uh, but as you say when you point it out you're like actually that does sound like something ryan johnson would do mm. um that's what johnson that's what johnson did with star wars i mean he was actually mm. on twitter at the time going well you don't like the film screw you kind of thing yeah um, put people even further offside um <laughs> you know uh, it's a it's a strange attitude that a lot of filmmakers seem to have today i i would put it on a par with you know the christopher nolan attitude of um they oh, can't, can't hear, hear what they're movie? saying. Oh, fuck. Fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> cinema. Like, yeah. What? I paid my money to see your film. I'd like to hear it, please. No. You know, mm-hmm. um, and you know, Johnson sort of going, oh, you're expecting something big and clever at the end. Yeah, I don't feel like doing it. Fuck you. Um, yeah. Is very Johnson-esque. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, I, it's, I just wonder about that attitude of trolling your own audience. Like, mm. your audience expects something. How is it different to subverting the audience's expectations, you think? Well, I mean, there's, I think the difference for me is obviously there are people like one of the best modern examples of a director who was hoisted by his own petard in many ways was M. Night Shyamalan blasting onto the scene with Sixth Sense and the 
amazing twist that he had in that. And people were suddenly going, ah, oh, he's Hitchcockian, blah, 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 blah. And it's like, yeah, there's, there's some similarities to Hitchcock in his work, but otherwise, not, not really. And everyone, every single movie that he produced, everyone was expecting that. And then his first real big, I'm going to do something different, was Lady in the Water, which I have a, a good appreciation for. I actually kind of like it a lot. Because it was very un Shyamalan. But it just put so many people off that he's not, he's never been the same level as when he first started. And I feel sorry for that because he has got talent when he's, when he's working with the right people. Um, subverting your audience expectations is kind of, I don't know if there's really, um, a particular director that does it entirely successfully the closest that i can think of is tarantino in how he genre jumps from one to another but his style is tarantino so... i don't think he subverts expectations at all i mean if you're watching yeah. um once upon a time in hollywood probably the first two thirds of a film subverts expectation maybe i'm wrong because mm. no one expects you to just be what a hangout movie yeah. driving around you know la doing cool shit looking cool but then you get the third act which is yeah what we always expect from tarantino yeah so it's even then so like yes the there there are directors who will jump from genre to genre and and have success in that but it's still very much there you know it's, it's like oh it's a so-and-so movie i know what i'm getting like it, audience, if you can think of any directors who have been able to just kind of undercut like that, maybe the maybe the closest is some of the comedy directors like Adam McKay, for example. When you think of Anchorman versus some of the more serious stuff that he's done, that that is a, a very big stylistic difference there, and he's not. There's very or very little of old McKay. Todd Phillips, Todd Phillips yeah. for example, with Joker. I mean, that was probably not what it was certainly not what we expected uh, for a yeah. guy who was, again, best known for the Hangover the hang movies, on. if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, that was a, a change of pace. Um, mm. But I, you're right. I was just kind of trying to put my finger on what the difference is between, because I think She Hulk definitely trolled its audience. Yes. Um, and maybe it's to do with intention. Maybe it's mm. to do with, I'm doing this piss people off like mm. or if you think of to go back to our the old chestnut the 2016 um ghostbusters reboot where mm. they put that scene in about you know trolls on the internet when youtube comments yeah. or something early in the film i don't you know i can't remember exactly what it was but there was a joke in there about people who write nasty comments on youtube after their yeah. trailer had been destroyed destroyed online on yeah. youtube and you kind of felt like You've already pissed everybody off with your shit house trailer. Are you sure you want to be trolling them now? Like, is that the best way to win yeah. them over? Or I yeah. don't know. That, you know, in She Hulk's case, you know, the, the producers and the the writers and the directors seem to go in and be seem to be ready to go into fight day one. Going, we're going to produce a show to piss off the fan, the, the toxic, you know, fanboys. Yeah. Like, yeah, but. You know, could you produce? What about the rest of your fans? <laughs> could you just produce a really good show, and that would show, wouldn't it? That'll learn them. If you yeah. Really shit hot show, but like something of a quality. We always talked about the the, the um the the showrunner. I think was the 
the, the lady who wrote Pickle Rick uh, in Rick and Morty. So just write really good stuff and, you know, um, everyone's going to love it and no one's going to fucking give a shit what the fanboys think. You're the toxic assholes. Yeah. We hate everything, you know. Yeah. Um, but I think they actually – my vibe was they went in going – they kind of went in expecting. It was their intention. Was this mm. to piss people off? Whereas yeah. maybe subverting your expectations is zigging when people think you're going to zag. But yeah. not doing so in a way that's designed to piss them off. It's designed to surprise and delight. Yeah. I think I think that is the difference. They the intention and the meaning behind why you do things. Um, when with with Glass Onion, it very closely kind of skirts on that line because some of it is so like, yeah, Benoit Blanc is going to point out blankly say this is stupid. And but it's within character. So it it's it gets away with it like 95%. Whereas when in She-Hulk, it's like, oh, we're gonna talk to Kevin and we're gonna talk about all of this and this and this and this and this, and we're still not even gonna do deliver an interesting ending to the show. It's like they you can feel them just kind of going, <laughs> fuck you, fuck you, fuck you. It's like you do realize that you spent millions of dollars being a troll not creating something compelling you were just trolling people which is not gonna placate them it's not gonna calm anybody down it's not gonna satisfy you are just adding shit to shit that sorry to keep oh, I, knocking I, on she hulk but it's, the I know, most it's not what we're here to talk about but it's an obvious example i mean i i didn't i certainly didn't get that vibe from this film. i certainly didn't find myself thinking he's taking the piss because the the conclusion is the the, the it's fucking stupid i was looking for something smart that in the end the answer is it's ridiculous and stupid um so <laughs> we've gone a long way and we've done the thing we always do uh, i assume most people know Pretty what it's rampant. about by now famed southern detective benoit blank travels agrees for his latest case we have uh, a fantastic cast here. Edward Niles, Edward, sorry, Edward Norton is Miles Braun, who is Elon Musk in every other name. Michelle mm -hmm. Ford, a little bit of Trump in there as well, which wouldn't surprise me because, I mean, if you're talking, uh, uh, you know, tycoons, egomaniac or tycoons with, you know, very low IQs and incredible luck, um, Trump's up there. But I just got real strong musky vibes from him in the sense that he, yeah. whereas, you know, Trump's all bluster and, and front, whereas... I, I genuinely think Elon Musk thinks he's a world-changing genius. Um, which, I mean, obviously Trump probably has said that at some point as well. I am always a very stable genius. Um, uh, but, yeah. <laughs> uh, I just, it's, it's, he's reminding me more of Elon Musk and, than, mm. uh, than he did. And I think that's a and it is perfect timing considering this is written and probably shot all before he bought Twitter and became mm. a troll-in-chief. Uh, we have uh, Kate Hudson as Bertie J, who is a an influencer and fashionista uh, mm -hmm. with her own uh, sweat uh, activewear line. Who believes sweatshops are where sweatpants are made? Mm -hmm. Which is correct. <laughs> not in the way she thinks it is. Uh, um, we have Dave Batista as Duke Cody, who is a men's rights activist and Twitch streamer. Um, mm -hmm. We got Catherine Hahn as Claire DeBella, who is a politician. Leslie mm -hmm. Odom Jr. as uh, Lionel Toussaint, Toussaint, who is a an employee of Miles Braun and they're like a scientist-y kind of character. 
Uh, and the other main character in here is Jeanne Lanay, uh, who plays uh, Andy Brand. Um, two characters, in fact. Some interesting, some interesting uh, uh, cameos in here. We have mm -hmm. Ethan Hawke doing, you know, a few lines. Yep. Waste of Ethan Hawke. I guess he was just around, and they roped him in to do it. Um, just, why not? You know? um, we have uh, Hugh, Hugh Grant, Grant. as yep. Philip, who we have now been confirmed. I already talked about it, but now it's confirmed he is uh, uh, Benoit's husband. Um, and I was like, oh, it's Hugh Grant. I liked that very much. <laughs> um, uh, Stephen Sondheim, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and Angela Lansbury in one of her last roles. Yeah. Um, I enjoyed that scene very much with um, Stephen Sondheim, Angela Lansbury, and Natasha Leon playing, um, what was that video game? A, a video Among game. Us. Among Us. With um, yeah. Benoit Blanc at the start of a film. I thought that was very amusing, actually, <laughs> um, and nicely done. Um, I want but, I want a quick shout out to the Ryan Johnson peg um, that is Joseph Gordon Levitt playing the hourly dong. Don't yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> so they visit Miles Bronze uh, private island in uh, Greece. Uh, the insinuation is going to be a murder mystery weekend is the expectation, mm -hmm. um, but uh, it turns out there's a real murder and Benoit Blanc is sort of to work trying to figure out what actually happened mm. um and the ensemble cast works very nicely together we mm -hmm. ignore the comments you know whether or not you think the storyline is laughing mm. at you or laughing with you mm -hmm. you to make up your own mind um i thought the ensemble was fantastic i thought everybody was in tip-top form it was it was a joy to see them just interacting with each other i love dave batista and just how ballsy and unusual he's willing to go like this role is so strange when you compare him to his uh small part in uh blade runner or kind of anything that he he's jumping around quite a lot and i he's generally succeeding more than he's failing and he considering the acting talent the qualified shall we say with so like oscar nominations and award nominations of people that he's working with he does really fucking well <laughs> he's, he's, i think he's a i think he's actually fantastic i enjoyed him yeah. i enjoy him as an actor initially yeah. he was like okay he's a great drax but then again drax isn't stretching him too far as a professional wrestler you know hmm. that's not really shakespeare you know but yeah. he does what it's a bit like Gal Gadot, right? Not a great actor, but she does the Wonder Woman stuff pretty well. Yeah. Um, you know, don't put her outside her comfort zone because I don't think she's got much else. Yeah. Um, yeah. But for his credit, he steps outside that comfort zone on the reg. If I have a criticism yeah. of Dwayne Johnson, I watched half of Black Adam over the uh, Christmas break, and that was enough. <laughs> um, that's that's you a boring movie. You made it all the way through, so congrats to you. Um, there's one thing I, I always thought Dwayne was actually a really—I think he is a great actor in a lot of ways—and he seems like a really cool guy. And you know, I enjoyed his work as The Rock, um, but he never challenges himself. No, I don't think he's ever stepped outside of his comfort zone as an actor, which is fine if you just want to make twenty million bucks and do the same thing you do every time, which is either comedy or action, or preferably both. Mm -hmm. Fine. 
but like, wouldn't it be fascinating to see him? I would have always thought it would be fascinating to see him do something really interesting. I, I don't know exactly He, he did do it once. Southland Tales. Oh, please don't mention that film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let's Maybe he learned his lesson now. there, but he is <laughs> just so, I mean, I, I guess I'm comparing apples and apples because he was also a professional wrestler. Um, mm. But yeah, he doesn't do anything interesting, really. Mm. He just does the same thing again and again. Like, I think Tom Cruise, right? Like, I mean, love him or hate him. He's the biggest movie star in the world in the, in the 90s. What does he yep. do? There's Magnolia. Then he does Eyes Wide Shut. These are not, you know, expected movie star films. These are and, really yeah. hard, challenging roles. Yeah, and he's doing those whilst on sam- sandwiching both of those. He's got the Mission Impossible movies where he's just persistently kind of going, okay, i got to push my body to further extremes as well. He is willing to do the, do that change. Well, he was, um, not anymore, but um, yeah. <laughs> he got That's older, true. fair enough. But, yeah, um, he's 63. Uh, I mean... <laughs> maybe he should be doing more of a Magnolia things to be easier on the body with the Mission Impossible stuff. I did also, I did like the, the flashback sequence to the younger um, Miles dressed just like but fucking Tom Cruise, Tom Cruise character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was, that was a deliberate choice, apparently. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so <laughs> kudos to Dave Batista for doing interesting things. I, I love his work. Yes. Uh, yes. Um, it was cool to see Catherine Hahn pop up again after her, she broke out as uh, Agatha um, in uh, WandaVision. She was one of the best things about um, the, the uh, Marvel TV shows to date. What did you make of Janelle Monáe playing sort of a dual role? She did great. Um, she played um, the role of Andy fantastically well. She was a cold-hearted bitch, but the the way that Ryan Johnson f- kind of filmed all of the pieces slowly, kind of you see seeing sequences from different points of view, and just things that don't quite make sense, like at the at the sort of like at the first portion of the movie you see andy going around and then you suddenly randomly see her stumbling around he's like well what's going on there and then it gets revealed later on <laughs> she's, it's it's funny and in hindsight he's gonna go oh okay i get it and she she's really good at differentiating those characters with subtlety just those little tweaks of personality or shutting off or opening up a little bit more or less in this scenario or that one. Really impressed. Um, so the rest of the cast, I think uh, Kate Hudson did a great job as well. Good to see her back doing stuff. I haven't seen her in anything for yeah, quite a while, a while now. Uh, we, we almost got a, her as a chain movie if we'd chosen that horrible uh, music film, if I'd chosen that one. But fortunately, everyone involved there didn't. Um, she, <laughs> she's got again, she's got great comic timing and she does nicely in this film. Um, I, I just, I agree with you, I don't think this is as good as the first one, but yeah. I suspect it's because of two things for me. One, my expectations on the first one were set to zero because mm-hmm. I didn't like the Rise of Jedi or whatever, sorry, the last Jedi. <laughs> I, I like parts of it. I think there are ideas in there, like probably less than you, but I thought some, there are, it veered wildly from startling genius, moments of genius, through to moments of like, what the fuck is that? You know, a film that has, you know, the, the Holdo maneuver and uh, Mary Poppins, Princess Leia in the same film. So, um, you know, 
I, I I was just I really walked away from that not liking it until I saw the next one, which made me like it more. Um, but um, <laughs> I went into Knives Out going Ryan Johnson. I don't know if he's for me because I didn't love Looper, and mm. I didn't like the Brothers Bloom very much. So I was a bit like maybe he's just not for me. And I love Knives Out. I thought it was yeah. wonderful, and it was such a subversion a subversion of expectations. I didn't expect anything. Uh, and I enjoyed it immensely. I didn't, I'd only ever seen Daniel Craig, I think, in, in Bond films. And to see him having so much fun with a role, it was, mm-hmm. it was wonderful. So coming into this, my expectations were much higher, having loved the first one. And it was pretty good. It was just that I kind of went in expecting it to be pretty good. So, you know, uh, it didn't blow my mind quite as much as the first one. But I don't think it should devalue the fact that this is a very enjoyable you know, uh, two hours, 20 minutes of fun, really. It's a bit of, yeah. you know, uh, whodunit fun. It's the kind of movie that nobody else seems to be making at the moment. Yeah. Um, I uh, Whilst I have my um, reservations about some of the pieces, like I've said, I still really enjoyed it. And I love Benoit Blanc as a character. I think he's great. Um, I think that this movie and how he is just, persistently frustrated with how stupid these highly successful people are around him just um, informs on his character more. And it would be, I can uh, kind of imagine what the traditional third part of this Benoit Blanc trilogy would be, where it'll be the um, murder mystery that is being orchestrated by his arch rival or something like that. That's what it would be. And then it would somehow tie to it being Benoit's sister or brother or uncle from a third cousin or something like that. I don't know. Um, That's right. I said uncle from a third cousin. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Try and work that family tree out, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) Breed them close up in uh, your neck of the woods in Britain. <laughs> no, that's in Wales. Um, it's kind of the Tasmania for England. Uh, <laughs> but um, I don't think that that's what's going to happen in the next one because Ryan Johnson permanently wants you to guess what's going to happen in his movies. That's what he likes to do. The, you know, the the... <laughs> The notion of running out of fuel was not something that ever anyone considered in Star Wars until suddenly he thought, you know what, that is a legitimate thing and I can use that to build narrative. He overused it, but still, um, he's he's going to point out those little things. Like going back to um, uh, Tom Cruise and Mission Impossible, one of the things that Brad Bird wanted to do in... Uh, Mission Impossible Ghost Nation was see all of the um, the gadgets and things either break or fail repeatedly in some way, shape, or form. And that brings, that informs the narrative because it makes the missions more impossible, for one thing, and it adds that little bit of brevity to it because we've all had scenarios where shit goes wrong. And so suddenly having this movie where Benoit Blanc is just surrounded by people who he automatically his initial thought the public appearance of all of these people is they are some of the best brightest people in the world and then it's like wow they're they're all fucking what every everyone's had that moment 
and it just this movie just builds on the character of uh benoit blanc in such a good way that whatever they do next we know benoit blanc more and he can be put into literally any scenario now and we are going to enjoy it because he's proven himself to be very smart in the first movie and he's proven himself to be no one's fool in this one so they've Brian Johnson has cleverly created two uh, two stories for this character to just flesh him out to the point where it's like, you know what? I can literally put Benoit Blanc into any movie that I want. It doesn't even have to be a fucking murder mystery at this point. And that is impressive. Let's just hope they avoid the desire to do some sort of stupid crossover or something. Oh, people still keep on talking about those Muppet movies crossovers. No. No, just no. But if if they did, they would have to go the Michael Caine route, where Michael Caine treated the Muppets like actors, and that would that would be that would work. Because there was a wonderful uh, meme that goes around as like uh, Muppets Christmas Carol works because Michael Caine um, treated the Muppets like actors. Muppets Treasure Island worked because uh, Tim Curry uh, is it Tim Curry. I've never seen that one. Fuck. Um, uncle, uh, he played uh, Pennywise. Yes, uh, Tim Curry. Yes, Tim Curry. <laughs> um, that movie worked because he played a Muppet with the Muppets. <laughs> <laughs> and they just kind of fit themselves to whatever it was. And um, they could, in theory, do it, I think. I think they've developed the character of Benoit so well that it can happen. But introducing hugh grant as the husband i think that suggests that they want to just open the world up a little bit more but at the same time the amount of just cameos and name drops the jeremy Renner hot sauce and things like that there's no hold bar no holds barred for what happens next and that is that is the, the ryan johnson trick and he has full freedom to do it because he's already yeah. got Netflix's money. So, mm. yeah. Yeah, so yeah. if you haven't checked it out, it's on Netflix. I think mm-hmm. it did a very short cinema run uh, before yes. it went to Netflix. Who knows if it'll do that again? I think they did that to try and get it a awards nomination. I think uh, so. Yeah, I, I don't know if it's going to do it. It might get a Best Picture nod because they get ten of them, but that doesn't really mean much anymore. <laughs> um, uh, speaking of Best Picture nods, I would not be surprised if our next film gets the best picture nod and that is the Rafe finds anya taylor joy uh horror mystery thing um menu yeah um let me just pull up the trailer for that for people who have not seen it okay now this is currently uh is now available to um stream on uh disney plus um so if you haven't had a chance to go and check it out it's there it's in your house ladies and gentlemen but here is the trailer for the menu good evening Welcome to Hawthorne. It'll be our pleasure to feed you. Tonight will be magical. 
Over the next few hours, you will ingest fat, salt, protein, and at times entire ecosystems. We're eating the ocean. We're eating the ocean. Are you crying? <laughs> it's just I find it all very moving. So it's okay that I'm not as into this as you are. Oh my god. You shouldn't be here tonight. You, my dear guests, are not the common man. Isn't that right? Yes, Is he gonna keep doing that? What happens inside this room is meaningless compared to what happens outside. Yes, we are but a frightened nanosecond. Yes, Nature is timeless. Yes, what the hell is going on? Yes, I love you all. Yes, we love you too, sir! Any questions? Is this bergamot I'm getting, chef? Yes, it is. The Trevor menu. So, this mm -hmm. is a horror, like I said, a horror mystery, I think maybe the best way to put it, mm -hmm. with a sort of satirical comedy edge to it as well, which makes it quite a unique beast. This is one of the more unique films I've seen in a very long time. A young couple travels to a remote island to eat at an exclusive restaurant where the chef has prepared a lavish menu with some shocking surprises. This was written uh, by Seth Rice and Will Tracy, uh, who I believe made their money on things like, uh, what's the place? I'm trying to think of it, but it's the one about the tycoons. Um, I should have had all this in front of me, the shouldn't New I? New York? Succession. Succession. Oh, Succession. Okay. Sorry, my bad. Uh, succession, uh, which I believe a lot of people like i have not actually ever got into it myself okay. it's directed by mark mylod uh who is also uh made his name doing television uh, game of thrones succession mm -hmm. shameless so this i think is one of his first forays into features mm -hmm. um stars uh, as i sort of noted before ray fines plays the somewhat mercurial uh, uh celebrity chef who uh, runs the restaurant um, we've got uh, Nicholas Holt um, who is Tyler uh, who is one of a one of our sort of protagonists who is the diner and we have his date for the restaurant Anya Taylor-Joy playing Margot mm -hmm. probably the other really recognizable face you'll see in here is John Leguizamo who plays the mm -hmm. character movie star um, is, but... is that is that movie star spelt Johnny Depp because there's so many Johnny Depp references and just sense sensibilities of the way that he dressed and shit. Um, he had, character does have a name in the film. Like, I don't remember what it is, but he's just credited as movie star. You might also know Richard Burney and Judith Light done a fair bit of TV work, but you will not probably, I don't know why I wouldn't recognize those names. Mm. Um, so apart from, you know, your big name stars there, it's a, it's a fairly, it's a cast made of character mm. actors. Yeah. Um, what did you make of the menu? Um, I liked the first two thirds of it. Um, I liked the subtle little bits of comedy that were put through it. Um, as someone who has spent 23 years in customer service and customer relations, um, the, the, it, 
some of the intentions behind uh, the chef and the uh, cook staff, and um, I, I very much <laughs> empathize with in some ways. Um, but I feel like it has, there were too many holes um, that weren't well enough explained and too many stretches for me to just enjoy it all the way through. I loved um, how it ended, but there's w one big piece of information that is not shown or not explained well enough. For you're going to need to put the spoiler warning up because I need to know what you're talking about. And I'm sorry, ladies and gentlemen, everyone else in between them decided okay. you're going to have to pair with us here now because I'm curious, curious to know what he's talking about. I didn't notice any. Um, and, I, and this film, the thing about this film for me is you know how some films you walk in, like I, I completely forgot that I watched half of Black Adam until tonight. Um, <laughs> it's completely gone from my memory until I started talking about um, Dwayne Johnson. But this film stayed with me for days. So I'm mm -hmm. very curious to hear what uh, George has to say. So if you don't want to know anything about the film, spoilers, spoilers are incoming. To me, they didn't explain how he brainwashed his whole staff to be in the same willingness to kill and die. But it was um, not well enough uh, explained for me. And then it's by the end, the so like the final speech before he they present their small menu. Um, and the uh, the kind of peace that is shown on the the patrons faces as they kind of just accept their fate it's like okay yeah there's charisma there and he's very good at telling a story but i i don't buy it I'll pay, the last one. I'll pay the last one i had that thought to myself as well so um, if you stay with us through the spoilers, maybe you've seen it, maybe mm. you won't see it, uh, and you just want to hear us talk about it. So the, it turns out the uh, the chef and his uh, his staff have decided that this dinner will be their last, and they will be taking all the diners down with them. And so it's like mm. a giant bit of suicide by them. Uh, and here's where social satire comes in with the um, – these it's sort of it's noted there in the trailer like you are not the common people the people who can afford it this restaurant have taken all the joy out of it um they uh the leeches on society and so this is like their semi-futile statement to say something about mm -hmm. their what these people have done with their lives but to this point where they deserve to be treated like this where they are stabbed and beaten and you know um, and, and in the end set on fire um yeah. So uh, I, I didn't have a problem with the idea of what his staff had decided to do in the sense that the staff, there was that one line from one of the staff who is watching the food critic when the food critic is trying to get her to let her go. says, I can help mm. you start your own restaurant. That's where one of his staff says, actually, it was my idea to kill everyone. Mm. So um, for me, that sort of let me know that everybody was kind of on the same page. I don't know that he had to do a lot of convincing um, mm. in it. Uh, as you would know, being somebody who's worked in the service industry, and that's actually a great line where um, uh, Ray finds sort of recognizes that in Anya Taylor Joy's Margot, 
that she mm. says, you know, I can you sort of smell the smoke. You've been someone who's worked in the service industry yourself. Mm. Uh, in that she, you know, well, we're doing full spoiler. She is a prostitute. Mm. Um, uh, um, but I, I just assume that, you know, anyone who's worked in, in you know, uh, food service for long enough, it wouldn't be a massive leap to say, hey, you kill some people. Hmm, I'm interested. But you're right. If somebody had decided to set, uh, put a, a, a marshmallow coat on me and mm. a chocolate hat and then set the room on fire so mm. that I would become a human s'more with um, that, I, I haven't had hot chocolate melted on my head recently, um, but I imagine that would hurt. It's it, it's a it's a wee bit stingy, uh -huh. and and goopy. So the, you're right that I I will pay that. But that last scene where everybody calmly sits there and accepts their fate of I'm going to die in here, mm. um, whilst the room is set on fire and they are literally having melting chocolate pour over their faces, which would be incredibly painful. And I don't think mm. there were anybody. There wasn't actually a great deal of screaming or pain or. Yeah. Nothing express. I don't know what the director was going for at that point, but even if it just had a scene where they tied them to their chairs first, mm. that scene probably would have worked better. I mean, for for me, the only justification for their their kind of willingness is that they almost they're almost too stupid to realize in the in the way that we talked about the stupidity of the miles character in glass onion this is like oh this is the ultimate representation of art and food and i am a part of it isn't this is such a, a wonderful experience but even then they didn't do enough to put that through as what they were intending to go for and so it just kind of left me feeling very all right. Mm. I kind of feel like I missed it, missed an important piece there or something. Just something. Um, but there we go. Should um, we uh, remove spoiler warning? Is there anything else you wanted to talk about spoilers wise? No, I don't think so. Sorry, Yurish. Okay. Some someone's stream. Mighty yours is dropping in and out, so sometimes ah, I'm, I'm not. Um, so apologies to people on the podcast. If that's happening to you. Hopefully not. It's just me. <laughs> hopefully um, not. Hopefully. No. I enjoyed the social satire element of it in the sense of this is mm. uh, these are rich people who this is happening to. These are very privileged people. These mm. people who have lived pretty questionable lives to this point mm. in time. So, um, though I think they might have been able to do a slightly better job of that mm -hmm. on the whole, though, um, I enjoyed the the questions about class that that mm -hmm. um, the filmmakers were making there, and the the, uh, the points I had to make about people who go so deep into something that they pull all the joy out of it. Mm. Which yeah. is what we pride ourselves here on the show on doing. So I hope you're enjoying us <laughs> sucking the joy out of most things. Um. Um, I I I kind of felt like the um, the characters, whilst the the patrons for the restaurant, whilst assholes and obviously doing bad things, it's like, are, are they really that 
bad like they were able to gather lots of information and like the sequence with the um the tortilla wraps being laser printed with sort of like um documentation and things like that it's sort of like that was really cool but at the same time it's like okay they they clearly were able to they've got the 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 chefs uh, the kitchen staff have clearly got enough connections that they were able to find these really buried pieces of information but these were the the worst people that they were going to bring to their their last meal i i mean it, it just felt kind of like all right yeah they're dicks and they've done bad shit but why did they target all of these people i mean there was a lot of connection to the the owner of the restaurant and stuff and how he was kind of like um uh, sort of like an angel investor for for the restaurant and stuff like that and so I'm like okay so it's personal you haven't really gone into that enough to make that the 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 crux that you're hanging on and especially when um the line you said of of the other chef saying uh saying oh it's my idea like, ah okay so it's not about ralph fine's character then it's it's a collective but you haven't given me quite enough information for me to care about all of these other these other chefs and it was it just felt like it had these really cool ideas but it either didn't invest enough time into them to flesh them out enough or they should have taken a bunch of them out and, and streamlined it a little bit more just for me to be able to enjoy it i i could, I could disagree with you i think you have a point but i didn't care um because <laughs> this film won me over i enjoyed the atmosphere it created i enjoyed the idea of seeing rich people getting stabbed in the leg and turned into uh, problematic <laughs> uh desserts um i enjoyed seeing them be hunted down by the kitchen staff i i love the bit where the last one got given the the, the cream egg yeah <laughs> um uh, i just thought it was really nicely done i thought it was a lot of for a film that was quite violent and you know uh had some very questionable uh ends to some of its characters i just had a great time with it i had a lot of fun mm. and i thought uh, the performances were excellent um particularly ray fines playing a different kind of role for him um i <sighs> I don't know. I felt like it was it was a pretty standard role for him. For I associate him with more M now as I think the most recent thing I've seen him play. See, I I was there was def I definitely was getting kind of elements of him as Francis Dollarhide from when he was in Red Dragon, even sort of like the um, it's like mild, like it just. It, it was almost like a like a patchwork quilt of some of the things that he's done like there was the 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 formality of the performance and his kind of clapping and things like that it was it kind of just got me a little bit of schindler's list um there was like i said red dragon there was a tiny bit of voldemort in some of it where he's just being very threatening and it was like okay he's he's pulled all this together i don't feel like he was of like breaking new ground with the role he was fantastic in the role and he did it really well but i felt like it was strangely a somewhat safe role for him 
I can't comment on Voldemort because, of course, I've never seen any of the Harry Potter films. Um, but um, where I think it's different, I can see you might see this as him playing a you know, stiff, formal character. But this is a stiff, formal character with some interesting personality characteristics that we find out about towards the end of the film. And the exploration between him and Margot, especially, I don't want to spoil the end for people who decide to skip ahead of the, mm. the spoilers, but the the denouement, to borrow a word with you tonight, between he and Margot, <laughs> uh, I think portrayed a real um, sensitivity and almost vulnerability of his character, which I don't think we associate with any of those characters you talked about there. I, I can't remember Red Dragon very well, and honestly, <laughs> I kind of forgot that existed. Um <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, I think that kind of vulnerability and sensitivity that he added to the character is what made it a really unique role for him and not something you see a lot from an actor like him who's kind of played either a hard man or, you know, a very formal person. But, I'm, hmm. um, you know, we can intelligent people can disagree about that, but I thought he was sensational. Personally, hmm. I think he should probably get an Oscar nod. I don't think he'll win. Hmm. Um, he won't. Um, but he uh, that is burst that's burst uh, that Oscar has Brendan Fraser's name engraved yes, on it, it already. Does. I think, yeah, I haven't even seen the whale yet, hasn't even yeah. come out here yet. No, um, so uh, fuck you to Hollywood for <laughs> making us wait. Um, uh-huh. you know, uh, but uh, I think he's coming out soon, though. Soon, it should be. I think you get an Oscar nomination, he should. Um, uh-huh. I enjoyed Amy Taylor Joy's role in this as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought she added some nice spunk. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't think it was anything particularly groundbreaking for her, but I enjoyed it nonetheless. And mm-hmm. Nicholas Holt, Nicholas Holt, I think was absolutely fantastic in this. I loved him. He played it. Um, it was like the the absurdity of his obsession with the food and things like that. There was almost in in some moments almost an element of him being so kind of oblivious to the threat of everything that it kind of made me feel like i'm watching leslie nielsen in airplane where he's playing it so fucking straight and it works really really well to add an extra level of sinister to the whole fucking movie because he's just all about the food and the revelations of who knows what later in the movie it makes that even more chilling and it does really really work that that character and how nicholas played him was fantastic and the the uh evolution of the relationship as we are initially presented to the end between him and margot was great as well the twist about what happened the the, the their relationship i think where and it's in a way it ends is mm. one of the more shocking and interesting parts of a story mm. and i um I really liked him in this film, and I think mm-hmm. he was one of the reasons why I enjoyed it so much. Um, yeah. I, I personally, I think, as I said, I think this will probably get a. Again, I wouldn't be surprised if it's got a best picture nod because mm. they tend, it's stylish. Tend to get a nod. Yeah, um, I love. I also love the use of sort of like the sort of like the breakdown of the each meal and things like that like um sort of like uh was it uh tyler's mess and things like that and just the breakdown of what it was i thought that was a nice little touch as well yeah. just adding that level of absurdity and class commentary 
to it that just suddenly, yep, that was well done. I like that. Um, yeah, I, I can't look at me. I think we were a bit split in this one. So um, I'm going to, I give it a strong recommendation. If you haven't had a chance to see this yet, do check it out. But I mean, what do you think? Would you recommend it to someone who hadn't seen it? I would definitely recommend it. I, um, my own, my personal reservations to it are just my personal reservations of little bit of information missing just to really round it off. I felt like some of the, the edges, shall we say, were a little bit uh, rough, but otherwise great. It, the, the comedy elements of it really landed. The sinister nation, uh, notion of it really landed. The performances were strong. Um, it looked stunning, like it was beautifully shot. Um, it almost, there was more than a passing resemblance to the way that it was shot with the food and with the brutality to um, Hannibal, the TV show. And that was expertly done. And the fact that they did that in this movie as well, really showed that they were they were considering every level of the of the production of this so they did a really good job it's just that it was missing something for me to say yeah that was great so there you go that's that's mm. a pretty high quality couple of films we recommended there and you got two two we would say you've got uh glass onion available now on um netflix, netflix. and you've got uh the menu now available to you on disney because when you think about you know uh murder and fancy restaurants you think disney it is true. <laughs> um, now, should we end the show there? Try and get I, I think so. I think so. I, habit of getting below the two-hour mark. I, I'm going to say we got we got five minutes. Yeah, five. We're getting there. We're going. We're going to go try and go super fast. But I'm going to introduce a quick segment. I'm going to. We are going to call binge browse bone, and we're going to do <laughs> fast money here. So this is Mary Fuck Kill for TV. So good try is stick to this for TV shows. I'm gonna give this thick and this one because I want to keep this super sharp. If we can just go for a quick, just a couple of quick 30 seconds each on a TV show we've enjoyed over the last three weeks. We've been off the air. If you've got to come across any, and obviously for those who are uninitiated, binge is pretty obvious. Browse, we'll come back for more later. A bit like I said about the prototype. What's the prototype of the peripheral? Mm, um, yes, bone would be, you know, it's uh, it's 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 uh, She-Hulk material. Though <laughs> interestingly, George does sometimes put his browse material in the bone box, which you know, um, you know, uh, <laughs> is his own. Pre- I'm going to start and say, binge. That yes. is the bear. The bear is a the TV bear. show that is winning uh, one actor at the Golden Globes last week. The Bear is available in Australia on Disney+. Plus. Uh, it is uh, based in a restaurant. The young chef from a fine dining world returns to Chicago to run his family's sandwich shop. Stars Jeremy Allen White as the character of uh, Carmen or uh, Carmi. Uh, and it's about him coming from a restaurant very much like the one in the menu, uh, Michelin starred, to running a family-run sandwich shop after his brother commits suicide. And it's in Philadelphia, and he struggles to in- ingratiate himself with an existing team, uh, with his customers, and at the same time trying to save a business that is deeply in the red. Mm. This is fucking fantastic television. Fantastic. You don't need to be a foodie 
you don't need to be a, a fan of uh, Michelin starred restaurants and that kind of thing. But if you, you don't need to be kitchen dramas, you don't need to be an Anthony Bourdain fan. Uh, but this is some of the best television I have seen in the last 12 months. This is sensational television, brilliant drama, brilliant acting. And he, the uh, cliffhanger it leaves it on at the end of season one means that I found one of those moments where you're like, fuck you, I have to wait a year to see what happens next. <laughs> fuck you guys. It's so good. Absolute binge reading for the bear. All right. Well, I'm going to give a browse rating for Jack Ryan on Prime Video. It is uh, just finished releasing season three of John Krasinski, Jack Ryan TV series. And um, it is perfectly cromulent. Um, John Krasinski is a perfectly fine version of Jack Ryan to go with all the other perfectly fine versions of Jack Ryan that we've had from Alec Baldwin, Harrison Ford, even Chris Pine. Um Ben Affleck, just to round them all off there, everyone. Um, but what what is there to say about Tom Clancy's Jack Ryan is, yes, it, you know exactly what's going to happen. You know every single beat. It's done perfectly well. The action sequences are done well. It is shot well. It is acted well. But it is not surprising you in any way, shape, or form. This is one that, whilst they do chuck the whole thing down, there is no need to, uh, to binge this at the end of every single episode um i finished season three got to the end of each episode was it like i i i could wait and that's 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 not what you want when it's you know it's like okay that was that was fine but um you know whereas so like other binge worthy things you get to the end of the episode and you're like i want more it's like okay it's it's almost like they have kind of done like with with a as you've you've said in, in a number of books about those airport novels where you kind mm. of read them and you don't need to think you can just put it down for a while and you don't there's there's, there's no agency to finish it this has that kind of sensibility to it which is disappointing McDonald's, mcdonald's reading you know yeah and that's particularly disappointing when you've basically got a ticking clock in the show and it's like mm, i feel like there should be more urgency here i feel like i should want to get to the end but i don't i don't so it's a browse on jack ryan on jack i'm ryan. going to go a soft binge on welcome to chippendales Mm. Uh, this okay. is a TV miniseries again available on Disney Plus. It's good stuff going around on Disney Plus. The origin mm. stories of Simon Steve Bunnergee, the Indian American entrepreneur who started the stripper troop Chippendales. Because when you think male strippers, you think Disney. <laughs> um, I know I do. Uh, uh, this stars um, Kamal Nanjiani. Uh, in the role of Simon Steve Banerjee. He's probably the, uh, the most recognisable face in here. Mm -hmm. Adley Ashford in here has been in some stuff. Juliet Lewis in here as well in a smaller role. This mm -hmm. is what it says in the box. It is a exploration of the story of Steve Banerjee and how he came to found uh, Chippendales, first as a nightclub, then as a touring troupe of strippers, and how he managed to fuck it all up in the most spectacular and horrific way possible. Um it's for five it's it's enough that many episodes i'd say it's seven from memory eight sorry 
there's seven episodes that holds its it holds itself in good stead. And it really builds a character of Steve. Well, uh, Kamal Nanjiani's sensational in this. He's really pushing himself into new spaces in this. Uh, he plays a very different type of character to that we normally see him play. Very proud, very uptight, very conservative for a guy who runs a stripping cl strip club. Um, yeah. Where it really begins to fall apart is probably the last couple of episodes, particularly the last episode where it telegraphs its punches so hard but you're mm. like, there's absolutely no mystery about what's going to happen in that last episode. It's based on a book I've never read. I had no idea about this story. But last episode, I found it incredibly predictable and mm. a bit of a letdown as a result. I was like, oh, okay, so this is going to happen. Oh, exactly what I expected just happened. Oh, okay, there's one shock at the end of that, which, you know, I'm not going to spoil for people. But, again, probably not hard to see coming, especially for someone like you. That's your superpower. Um, but it is a highly, up until that point, it was highly, highly entertaining. And the ending, while predictable, I mean, that's the problem with true stories, right? You're kind of bound by the fact that what actually happened has to happen. So, um, yeah, the end was kind of obvious from halfway through, but, uh, if you're, it's really quite good. I enjoyed it. There are some, it's not perfect. It's got some weak pots points. I've seen some people, it is probably a little bit superficial, I had fun at the same time. Yeah. Um, last one from me. It's going to be a moderately hard bone for Willow on Disney Plus, just to balance things out there for for Disney Plus. Um, I started off by rather enjoying uh, Willow when it first started out. It did a fairly good job of recapturing the the youthful alternative kind of feel of a fantasy movie from the uh val kilmer starring um uh well i say val kilmer starring it's just kind of kind of main maybe the main character called willow um warwick davis's character um but this very quickly you kind of end up going ah it's pure fan service and they are actually telling nothing new or original here. They're, oh God, how is it only eight episodes? And I feel like I've been watching this for six years. Oh no. And Warwick Davis, God bless him, but he is one of the worst things in this show. The writing of it is really bad. It's Jonathan Kasdan, which I think he's actually the son of Lawrence Kasdan, who is one of the kind of legends of Hollywood, considering he wrote Raiders of the Lost Ark, for example. Um, it's, it's disappointing in so many levels. There's some interesting visual... Uh, production value going on but everything around it is so it's almost to the point of the cw levels of hmm, no, no just no it's it's not good that's disappointing but not surprising yeah. It's not surprising. Yeah, it's it's another uh, piece of evidence to suggest that there are certain things that may have been relatively successful in the past and grown a cult po uh, cult following. Doesn't necessarily mean that they should be re um, revisited. So just stop. Enough. No more. I'll That's go it. for my last one. Uh, mm -hmm. Is uh, 
the uh, I did talk a little bit about this late last year, and it is a solid binge rating on Fleischman is in trouble. Ah, uh, um, yes. I did talk about this, and so now it did end, so I can give everyone the over overview of the whole thing because they did stick the landing. Toby mm-hmm. Fleischman knew what to expect when he and his wife have almost 15 years separated. Weekends never have a holiday with the kids. Some residual bitterness, the occasional moment of tension in a co-parenting negotiations. Jesse Eisenberg and Claire Danes play Toby and Rachel Fleischman, a separated couple. We have Lizzie Kaplan playing uh, Toby's friend uh, Libby, Adam Brody playing his friend Seth. Um, to, this couple has split up. Uh, they have their, their kids' um, parenting arrangement worked out. We explore uh, Toby's experiences in the world of being a single man in his 40s with uh, dating apps and Tinder and such and um, uh, the ups and downs of that. Mm-hmm. We also we very quickly get to the point where his kids are dropped off at his house by Rachel and she doesn't come back to pick mm. the kids up. And then the real question is where does this story go and what does it do? It's, uh, does it do something interesting? Is it strictly a, you know, a missing persons thing? Is it something else? It is something else. It is something interesting. And it is really, it really does. We talked about subverting expectations earlier. This is a show that does that quite effectively. Now, it's based on a book by uh, the author's name who has something ridiculous. And I can't remember her name right now, but you can find it if you look it up. Uh, Flashman's in Trouble is the name of a book. So, uh, fantastic job by the author who also wrote the screenplay to turn into this. It's, I mean, if you're worried about it being too full on or being really preachy about things. I didn't find it as well, but I just really think it managed to make a number of points about a number of different things really effectively. I'm trying to be as vague as possible because I'd like people mm. to see it and enjoy it. This is available in Australia on Disney plus. So, um, uh, if you, I really cannot recommend this one strong enough. This is probably okay. They had you put me on a, put a gun to my head. I'd choose the bear over this. But this is really fantastic television. Mm. Great storytelling, great acting. Strong okay. binge recommendation there. Fantastic. That has been Binge Browse Bone for the first time on Armchair Producers, ladies and gentlemen. We'll try and bring that bring that back every week because I think it's a pretty pretty good little quick roundup. Um that has been our show, folks. We've got in ten minutes under. That's a start. That's a start, people. We're whittling it down. Um, this week, we had our return of the chain, chain movie with Beat Street. We are following that on to Awakenings for next week's show. We talked about Glass Onion. We talked about the menu. Um, we had uh, Binge Browse Bone. And what else did we talk about? Is that it? Have I, I think that was it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was it. All right, look at that. <laughs> All right, well, on that <laughs> on that confused note by the host, thank you so much, ladies and gentlemen. Don't forget, you can follow us on Facebook um, at uh, Armchair Producers, facebook.com slash Armchair Producers, youtube.com slash um, The Fried Brain, at The Fried Brain on uh, Twitter, at Evil Trav on Twitter, at The Fried Brain on Twitter, uh, I've already done the Twitter, um, twitch.tv slash armchair producers. Um, we stream it 
about 7.30 every Wednesday. If you have any recommendations for a movie that you think we should watch or a TV show, please let us know. Jump into the chat, leave us a message. Um, like, share, and subscribe. As always, leave a little review if you are one of our many podcast listeners. I say many. It could very well just be government officials and all of the uh, watch lists that we're on. Um, <laughs> but on that note, thank you so much, ladies and gentlemen. We will see you next week. Good night. Good night.